When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you fascinated by UFOs, the occult, strange history, and more? On October 14th through the 16th at SIR Nashville, the Strange Realities Conference 2022 will take place. Three days of exploring the mysteries of the supernatural, history, UFOs, the occult, and much, much more. Featuring presentations by Steve Berg, Micah Hanks, John Tinney, Adam Gorightly, Tim Banal, Christopher Ernst, Samantha Engel, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Melody Blackthorne, Dr. Future, Soraya Askath, Timothy Ritter, Aaron Gullius, Delaney Bowers, Olaf Phillips, and David Metcalf. With workshops by Kiki Dombrowski, Ren Collier, and Michael Hughes. Come join us in Nashville or online. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Find out what everyone is talking about. All right, guys, welcome to Conspiranormal. And uh, this is going to be an interesting one tonight. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get into some history tonight. I'm we're really going to face have, east and west simultaneously. Yeah. Exactly. Good. That's that's good. Um, I've really been, you know, chomping at the bit to do this show for a while. Obviously, there's this war between Russia and Ukraine going on, and um, someone that I've been wanting to get back on the show because he was on back. We're trying to figure out. I think it was 2017. Mark Schaus from the Russian Rulers History Podcast, and of course now it's especially timely because Mark has. A couple of books coming out called Understanding Putin, which really is a crash course on Russian history. And we're going to talk primarily about the first book tonight. I think we'll try to do another interview at some point about the, when the second book comes out. But uh, welcome back. Hey, Mark, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Glad to be here again. It's been a while. Yeah, you're the only history podcaster I've ever had on. Um, maybe one day I'll change that. But so far, <laughs> you're that, that guy. The only one that's agreed yeah, the only one that's agreed, <laughs> yes. I asked another one, but they didn't want to come on the they show. They get scared by the name, I think. Yeah, but um, we had you on back in 2017, like I said, and um, at that time, we talked about your your podcast, Russian Rulers History Podcast, which, um, guys, if you haven't checked that out, um, I'm a big fan. I really enjoy it. I need to get caught back up on it because it's been a little while, but I can remember a lot from it, from reading some of this book that uh, uh, Mark so graciously provided us. And this really is kind of like a survey of Russian history, but in the podcast, Mark focuses primarily just on the rulers and and that serves as a way to <clears throat> go through ruler by ruler what's going on in Russian history. So again, thanks for coming on, Mark. You bet. So I kind of want to talk about just like people that haven't heard that episode because it's been so long, your journey, how you got interested in doing this, this podcast, and then later on now, these two books. 
Sure. I started this way back in 2010. Wow. And I had a, uh, I have a background in Russian. I mean, I'm part Russian. My mom, uh, grandparents lived in St. Petersburg. They were, uh, the paternal side was part of the Russian Admiralty. And I'm also Russian Orthodox. And so I always heard a lot of stories from a lot of the expats who left Russia during the revolution, uh, my grandparents uh, and a lot of other people in the, the church would tell me these stories about Russia. And it was just such these fabulous stories. And then I took a course in Russian history back in 1976. I started uh, with Dr. Paul Average, who was the most sought after professor of history in the entire uh, university at Queens College in New York. He was so much fun. He brought life to Russian history. I thought, you know what? That's what I want to do. I want to become a Russian history professor. And he looked at me and he said, you're never going to teach Russian history because you don't speak Russian well enough. You only speak Kuchni Ruski, which is kitchen Russian, which meant I could order food, probably find my way to the bathroom in Russia and about it. <laughs> well, I've already had uh, over 1.2 million people download one of my episodes over the past 12 years. So Dr. Average Wish you were around so I could rub your nose in it, but I have taught quite a few people Russian history. Doctor Average did not foresee he did not foresee the advent of podcasting. So no, he didn't. That's for sure. But he did see forecast the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1976. He said, "I give it less than 25 years." It oh, was wow. off by about 10. Yeah. But he said they're flat broke. They don't yeah. have money, and he was right. Uh, there is a book out there, and I can't remember the name of it, but uh, uh, I do mention it in my recent podcasts about a woman who wrote a book about Russia and the Soviet Union, and it was about two years before its collapse and said they were, they were out of money. Their whole system can't survive any longer, and she predicted its failure. But Russian history is just so vast, so incredibly strange compared to most histories of European countries, Asian countries, because it's kind of a dual history. It's both Eastern and Western. It's both Asiatic and European. And it was just fascinating. And my other part, side of my family is German, but their history is kind of short. And, you know, with the German state really only coming about in 1870. So I thought Russian history might be an interesting podcast to start. I figured it would take me two years and I'd be done with it. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 years later, I'm still excited about it. And I've kind of deviated away from just doing Russian rulers. Uh, and I'm calling it Russian history retold because there's so many other aspects of Russia that are so interesting. I just finished a four-part series on the siege of Leningrad, which was a 900-day siege by the Nazis on that city where somewhere around 800,000 people died of starvation and uh, you know, from the shelling that went on for 900 days. So, you know, just kind of going off into different aspects of Russian history, and especially today with what's going on between Ukraine and Russia, wanted people to understand what's going on in a historical context. Yeah, and I think that's important because I think that a lot of Americans don't really understand really even what the difference between a Ukrainian and a Russian is, first of all. And... They don't understand the history of it, and they don't understand the, really the politics of it either. Right. And, you know, the U Ukraine was basically 
where the Rus started in Kiev. That's where the main part of Russian history where I start with a legendary person known as Rurik and his brothers who came, they were Varangian Vikings who supposedly were asked to come there to rule over the people of Rus. Uh, fanciful tale, but <laughs> so when we have to go with, because that's the only uh, information we have from something called the Primary Chronicles that was written in the uh, 1200s, where a monk wrote about the history of Russia, but kind of embellished it a little bit and with some pretty interesting tales. But uh, the part of Russia's that I find most fascinating is its paranoia. Uh, and that, to me, explains a lot what's going on right now. The Russian people, uh, their history is full of invasions. You know, people think about Napoleon and Hitler as the two who invaded Russia, but it's been invaded far more times than most people realize. The Poles have invaded, the Swedes, the Mongols. Uh, we've got Lithuanians, uh, Teutonic Knights, the Ottoman Empire, uh, the remnants of the Mongols called the, uh, the Khanates, uh, the Crimean, the Kazani, and the Astrakhan Khanates, they would invade Russia all the time. So the people got kind of paranoid about all this invasion stuff. And so when, you know, after World War II and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, they started seeing more and more of this potential invasion and that's why i think there's this conflict going on in ukraine is one of the reasons for it is this paranoia that is nato going to invade russia and from some of the people that i know who live in russia now that's part of what the media is portraying to them that they're just trying to prevent nato and all the you know, the americans from invading their country yet again yeah it, it is it is a big part of it and i want to talk about how you know, historically that comes about, why Russia, I'll talk about a little bit about some of those invasions. Your family history on the Russian side, um, did any of them get out after the Civil War? Were any of them involved in the Russian Civil War? Or? Well, my family were pretty smart. Uh, they saw the writing on the wall and they got out early with most of their wealth. Uh, my mother grew up in an extremely wealthy family in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. That's where they decided to go. Uh, she was so wealthy. She had servants, you know, 24 seven lived on a house with a marble staircase and the whole bit. Uh, her dad, unfortunately, my grandfather passed, uh, died trying to defuse a hand grenade while passing a kidney stone. Uh, when she was in 1926 after world war one, but she still had a very well to do life until the Nazis invaded and took everything. And they went from being extremely wealthy to being dirt poor. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, they, my mom married a German soldier. And my dad, who was about as much of a soldier as, as you cannot be, uh, he was blind in one eye. He was a concert pianist. And uh, I met some of his wartime buddies and they said, your dad was such a bad shot that he missed a deer while hunting three times and they said the deer kind of looked at him like how did the hell did you just miss me <laughs> and so uh they immigrated here to the uh united states in 1953 but they were lucky to get out of the, before the revolution uh my mom was targeted uh when the soviets started getting into germany uh 
and it was my dad's family that was able to hide her. And she was almost caught once and was an American soldier, a, a sergeant, an African-American sergeant who uh, stopped them from grabbing her. And she was able to get free. And she said, I'm going to the United States one day. And, wow. you know, she was part of the big Russian community uh, in New York City. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, its main headquarters, was uh, on the east side of Manhattan. And we lived on the west side, just across the park. And we would get a lot of the dignitaries, the metropolitans, the bishops would come to our house. And I would have a lot of the uh, old nobility visit us and they would tell me the stories about their their lives and how they made it out and my one of my series that i'm going to be doing in september is on what happened to all those people that made it out of russia and then those who did not make it out were part of the nobility or part of the privileged class and the bourgeoisie as the marxist would call them the heroin stories most of them left with nothing you know, they went from being incredibly wealthy to having to drive a taxi cab to make a living in Paris or wherever they moved yeah. to. It was, and then um, one part is those who made it out, and the second part is those who didn't. And very different stories. And I'm very glad my family made it out because what happened to those that didn't, uh, they didn't survive. And many of them were executed or sent to the gulags. So that's part of my passion is looking at this and having heard all these incredible stories from all these people. And when I uh, went to a, I was an exchange student in Paris in 1972 when I was 14. And I stayed with a Russian family. And then we went to a camp in Cannes, which was uh Part of the Russian Orthodox Church there, and I got to meet some of the people who made it out, some of the family of the Romanovs, their relatives, and really? it was interesting to see, you know, what they were doing and, you know, hear their stories, and that was a fascinating time. That had to have been pretty incredible to hear some of that stuff. Yeah, some of the other kids that were in the camp were uh, children of diplomats to Russia, from, say, Great Britain, from Germany, or to, to the Soviet Union, actually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, heard their stories because their families had gotten out. And now they were, you know, ambassadors, and you know, they were able to go into to the Soviet Union, and they would tell me how bad it was there, that the people really didn't have very much. And so, you know, it was uh, interesting. And then to see the fall of the Soviet Union, which we all thought when my professor said it was gonna collapse, we just went, that's crazy. That country's too powerful, too big. There's no way it's gonna fall apart. And yet 1991 came and they fell apart. So. I'm, I'm curious, Mark, how being Russian Orthodox influences um, some of your ideas about Russia and, and, and looking at Russian history they had a very big influence on the people. Uh, when Vladimir the Great had uh, converted to people in the 10th century, they became kind of partners with the czars or whoever the rulers were at the time. They were known as the Veliki Knyaz or Grand Princes. The church was working hand in hand with them to uh, become part of the, 
the ruling class. Uh, the church has a very deep part of the soul of the Russian people. So when the Soviet Union tried to take away religion, uh, it went underground, but it never left Russia. They, you know, they stayed there. They stayed part of the Russian Orthodox Church or in Ukraine, it's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church, very similar. But Russia, when Constantinople fell in, I believe, 1453, Moscow felt that they were the next Rome. So you had Rome and then that fell and then Constantinople. When that fell, that they held the, the chalice of the Christian religions, mm-hmm. so to say, and that they were the next Rome. And that was part of the psyche of the, the Russian people is that we are the, the last remaining true Christian heritage. And so that's why they were very powerful. But that started to fall apart with Peter the Great. Uh, he saw that the Russian Orthodox Church had too much power over the people, and he did not appreciate that. So he secularized the control of the church during his reign, and that remained that way. But now uh, Putin is using the church very much, and they're using him to get back that control and to get back into the you know good graces of all the people today. And, uh, you know, we look at the uh, patriarch who's there now, and you see him with a $2,000 Rolex watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, somehow that doesn't jive with what I remember. It's the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah, I'm curious what differences you see, because the Russian Orthodox Church here is, well, I guess it has its own organization, as I understand it. But do you see any difference between here and there? You know, the, there was something called Rokor, uh, which is the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia. That was the Russian Orthodox Church I belong to and with their headquarters uh, on Park Avenue in New York in the, I think it's about like 83rd Street or something like that. Uh, they were very staunchly anti-communist. They felt that the church in Russia at the time, the Soviet Union, were collaborators. And many of the ones who were allowed to live, the patriarchs and the metropolitans did in fact, worked for the KGB. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's right. an actual fact. So this was like a church in exile. Right. This was a church in exile. And they wanted to keep a lot of the old traditions going. Uh, they did have a, a meeting of the minds uh, a few decades ago where they said, yes, okay, Moscow has the, you know, the main patriarch but there's still a bit of a tension between them. And there's a few other splinter groups out there that don't believe in the control by Moscow of the church. And now I, there's a big split between the Ukrainians, obviously, and the Russians. Whereas the Russians are Orthodox churches actually promoting the war, which I, I have a hard time with. Why would you do that? You know, that doesn't, you know, jive with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, and the Ukrainians were condemning it and saying, you know, you're just invading our country and slaughtering our people. So there's a bit of a tension going on. There's some, still some differences uh, in rituals and things like that. They're not as deep as they used to be, but there's still a little bit of a tension. Between, and, and 
it's greater now because of the invasion than it was before. Mm -hmm. Would you say there's a kind of a continuum in that partial or almost total capture that the church was under during the Soviet times to now? Uh, Yeah, now they have a lot more power than they did before. I mean, their standing is far greater because Putin has really endorsed them. You know, Yeltsin started it, but Putin really you know, launched it into outer space, you might say. It's like it's way, way different. I mean, they were subjugated. And the only time that during the Soviet era that the Russian Orthodox Church had any breathing room was around World War II after Operation Barbarossa when the Nazis invaded. Stalin had to use the church in order to galvanize the people. Yeah. But as soon as that was over, back to, uh, you know, being suppressed and Khrushchev really suppressed them quite a bit. So it got worse under him than it did under Stalin. And knowing that Stalin himself actually studied in a Russian Orthodox seminary when he was young. Mm -hmm. So, but the, the Russian Orthodox church has been, uh, in Russia was mired with a lot of corruption for a long period of time. I mean, there were obviously some very, you know, spiritual people who were, you know, quite religious and would, you know, be really good Orthodox Christians. But then there was a lot of, a lot of issues with some of the uh, corruption in the hierarchy, you know, where there was, they were interested more in money than they were in the church itself. One thing that I've heard and I've seen some, evidence kind of corroborating this is that 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 infiltration of the KGB into the Russian Orthodox Church in some ways worked the other way around too to where the KGB became a lot of the people the guys in the KGB became more Russian Orthodox and more Russian nationalist and that they eventually in some ways brought the Soviet Union down from within it kind of makes sense in the fact that you know, the Putin and his guys come from the FSB, which was the successor to the KGB. And we have to remember who trained Putin. There's a guy named Yuri Andropov, who uh, yeah. was the head of the KGB. And that's where a lot of Putin's lessons come from, was Andropov, who was part of the Hungar- crushing of the Hungarian Revolution in 56, uh, how he brutally invaded the country in order to... Uh, keep the control of the Soviets over the Eastern Bloc. So a lot of his lessons come from that. And but with the, the church, yeah, there was a lot of them who became religious. There was a number of them who were Stalin's henchmen, who when they were uh, kicked out of the party by Khrushchev, became very deeply religious. A few of them became deacons in the church. Uh, others, you know, would became very religious after. Uh, and most of them didn't, like Molotov never did, but some of the others would become very religious. And I think that was part of what brought down the Soviet Union was that the people just didn't have anything to believe in and they needed something. And the church was what they had. And that's why it had such an incredible revival in 1992, starting in 92. The church went from being as suppressed as you can get to being very open and the people flocked to it. Yeah, and it's exceptionally powerful now. I mean, like you said, I mean, they really kind of cross-pollinate each other in a lot of ways. Yeah, they, the Russian Orthodox Church does not want to fall by the wayside as they did, you know, from 1917 until 1991. Uh, they have a long memory and 
you know, they, they don't want to go back to that again. Let's talk about kind of like this journey into Russian history. And of course, you start with the Kievian Rus, because it's through this development that you get these different ethnicities. You get Russians proper, but then you get Ukrainians and you get Belarusians. It's just like, how does this, do they start to kind of differentiate from each other and come about through this long historical process? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, that, you know, first the Vikings came in the Varangians. And part of what they were trying to do was it was a route to get to Constantinople. And so they would trade from their furs and everything, and they would take over the land of the Rus. And Ukraine was that nice pocket. It was also the breadbasket. And you can grow a lot of crops in Ukraine that you could not in other parts in the north of Russia. Uh, they would, you know, they expand, slowly expanded. But the problem they had at the time was there was a lot of competing cities. And my next uh, series that I'm going to be doing starting on Sunday is about the old cities of Russia and Ukraine and how they developed these rivalries. And it really wasn't until Ivan III, also known as Ivan the Great, that Russia began to start expanding into other people's lands, more so with uh, Ivan the Terrible, who the moniker the Terrible is actually kind of a mis- uh, translation it's more like Ivan the awesome mm -hmm. but fearsome awesome would be a better translation of it and he started going down and when he invaded Kazan and that Khanate there's that was the remnants of the Mongols the Tatars the Turkish peoples and they would take them into the uh, into the land of the Rus and one thing about the Russians is when they would conquer different areas and as they expanded they were very open to these people's uh, different lifestyles, cultures, things like that. They were very open to that. And they allowed their cultures to remain. They didn't try to uh, russify them until basically in the uh, 19th century under uh, the Romanos, starting with Nicholas I. And so as they expanded, but they also, we have to understand that when the Mongols invaded in the 13th century, about 1340, or 1240, rather, they were then shut off from Europe and they became very Asiatic. So that before they were very European. And what a lot of people don't realize is Kiev was larger than Paris in the mm -hmm. 1100s and around the 11th century. It was a huge city. It was very cosmopolitan. Some of the grand princes of Kiev, their uh, children would marry like the king of uh, France and parts of Scandinavia, they, they would intermingle with all the major families. But when the Mongols hit and they put that wall down, that ended. And so Russia missed the Renaissance and there was this huge influence. But one thing about the Mongols was they did not try to convert anybody to any religion of theirs. They were very open. They actually gave more power to the Russian Orthodox Church at that time. And the people flocked to it. So you began to get some of the cultural aspects of the Mongols, but also the Mongols left them alone. As long as you paid your tribute, you were fine. Right. And then with Ivan, one of the things they did is they started going east. They headed towards Siberia mm -hmm. with all its incredible riches. And so they would take in all those peoples and the different types of people. And it wasn't until Stalin, when he started deporting people in, like from Crimea and took them away and sent them 
you know, to a different part of the Soviet Union. Right. Try to break down those cultural uh, barriers that he did not like. He did not like nationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons for uh, a genocidal time uh, called the Holodomor, where the people of Ukraine were starved to death because he wanted to squash Ukrainian uh, nationalism. And so we have that, but most of the time, the Russians would just merge these cultures into themselves and make it part of the Russian experience. Right. I've heard them compared to um, Americans in that they're frontier people. Of course, it sounds like they largely went about it a lot more friendly, perhaps, than us. But also that our great Western like movies and media and stuff were pretty popular during Soviet times because they could relate to it somehow. Yeah, and they, they did a lot, a lot of them loved the Westerns. You know, that they thought was, I think, Stalin, that was his favorite genre of American uh, filmmaking. It was all the different Westerns that they would put out, and the Russians were also very big into jazz. I thought that was just very cool to them. And so they did consider themselves a very kind of frontier-like people. And if you look at some of the things with the history of Siberia, it's very interesting to see how these Russian people would go out there and it's a very unforgiving climate and land there. So they had to live off the land somehow. Uh, it was amazing, you know, far harder than anything in the United States. When we went west, they went east. They went right. so far east, they made it all the way to Alaska. Right. So, like, you have the Kiev in Rus, and it pretty much fragments into all these different states because of the, the way that they their succession laws – we're, we're, we're not quite father to son. So it became kind of this chaotic thing. And kind of out of that, you get the Ukrainians and the Belarusians and then what's later on said that the great Russians. Right. You had, uh, there was a system called the appanage and it would, you know, if you have like 10 acres of land and you have five boys, each one gets, you know, the one oldest one gets like seven acres and the next one gets like two. And then, the last three kids get, you know, that last acre and they split that up. So there was a lot of animosity between the sons and they would go into civil wars and fight each other all the time. And it would just splinter you know, whole families apart. And when the Mongols came, it actually solidified the groups and it, it broke that part up. And that changed the way things went. And it was Ivan the Terrible who actually started really making it so that it was father to son and that's it you don't have these breakups you don't have this different type of system that just splintered all of uh, ukraine up and russia but it was uh moscow that really was able to do this and it was why they called it the muscovite era where moscow became this one central city and it's a lot because of its location that it was far, far enough away from some of the invaders that could hit those smaller cities down lower and south and in the north, the east and the west. But it was kind of protected in there. And they had some great grand princes who really started gathering all the power into one state. And they started merging all these other little towns. And it was it's fascinating how they did that. What uh, Ivan I did, he started lending money to these principalities. And when they couldn't pay, he would take their land. And that's how Moscow began to grow. 
was basically usury, you know, lending money out. And then when they couldn't pay, oh, well, you know, you got to give me your land and give me your Princeton. So they would start merging them into this one state. Was he the one called Moneybags? Yes, Ivan Kalita, Ivan Moneybags. (laughs) And he, he had a great relationship with the Mongols. He would just send them money. And he would help them to collect money if, like, one of the princedoms didn't want to pay. Uh, He would send his troops in with the Mongols together and make them pay or destroy them. So very shrewd guy. And, you know, his sons and grandsons would continue that until Moscow became that major town, the major city of Russia, and created this land called Russia, where they began to merge places like Ukraine together. And, you know, under Peter uh, is when they really took Ukraine over yeah. because they're a uh, hetman or they're uh, the head Cossack in Ukraine sided with Charles XII of Sweden when he invaded Russia. And when they lost, Peter says, well, <laughs> you lost, now it's ours. And it really got solidified under Catherine the Great. How close is Ukrainian and Russian language? I imagine it to be kind of like Spanish and Portuguese. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the two. If you speak Russian uh, and you move to Ukraine, it would, wouldn't take you very much time to speak Ukrainian. But it is a distinct language. It is like Portuguese is right different enough. That Portuguese kind of a merger between Spanish and French. And so if you're a Spaniard, I mean, even if you're an Italian, my, my daughter spent a year in Italy as a Rotary Youth Exchange student. And she can understand quite a bit of Portuguese, mm-hmm. but she can't speak it. So yeah. there's that kind of a difference. So you can, you know, Spanish or Italian to Portuguese. That's a really good, uh, you know, analysis of that. So Ukrainian is distinct in the language, but a lot of similarities to Russian. Yeah. So this is part of the reason why they're kind of able to talk to each other and why there might have been some of those issues with the Russian soldiers going into Ukraine and fighting people that basically look a lot like them. Yeah. They're, they are having some issues and, and, you know, I've been in contact with people who one of my friends is actually used to work for Putin and you have to see the comments he makes online about Putin. I don't think I could, we don't want this to turn into an X rated episode, (laughs) Uh, but yeah. Another one who I saw, they showed pictures of some of the Russian tanks that were destroyed in Kiev near there. And it looked like they were made out of cardboard almost. That they had very little you know, protection from the shelling. And so the Russians are not as well equipped as you think. They are in hand to hand combat. They have, you know, great superiority and long distance weapons. But hand to hand, it's hard for a Russian to go into Ukraine knowing that these are your fellow, you know, they're, they're just like you. You know, they have, a simil- they have the same history. And now we're fighting them. So the, uh, the propaganda that they're using is once the Russian soldiers get there, they're like, oh, my gosh, this is not what I signed up for. So I don't know how long this is going to last. I think it's going to last as long as uh, Putin's alive. And yeah, from the rumors I've been hearing... That may not be that long. Yeah, I've heard some of the same things that you're talking about. Um, so we talk about kind of like the Mongol conquest, and that really isolates Russia. 
and we touched on how that isolates them kind of culturally as well for like three centuries, I believe, really. Yeah, and uh, wasn't it was from twelve forty to about fourteen eighty before yeah. they were able to throw off the yoke. But still, there was you know the Europeans didn't think very much of the Russians. They thought of them as a backwater country until Peter the Great in the late 1600s, early 1700s. So it set them back almost 500 years. Yeah, it did. And this really is like what's causing the issue now is the kind of like this paranoia of the West and some of these like invasions. And uh, one of the things that actually oddly affects Russian history is something that didn't even happen to them. And that's the Fourth Crusade. Like that's something that I hear that kind of comes up again and again, like the when the actual because before the Turks took over Constantinople, the uh, the um, Crusaders took over Constantinople. Right, you know that's Russia always has a bit of animosity towards the Europeans when it comes to Constantinople. They really believe that they should be taking over, and, and it was Catherine the Great who really wanted to. And I got very close. Uh, they were within a hundred miles of taking it, but it was the Europeans that stopped them. And then when uh, they tried to do it again to gain more control, while the Ottoman Empire was collapsing in the 19th century, we had the Crimean War. And that one was between Russia against mm. Britain, France, Sardinia, and the Ottoman Empire. And that was a totally crushing defeat to the Russians. And that's one of the more fascinating wars. It was the first war that people actually got to see photographs of and to see what was really happening. And it was the first part of like trench warfare, which would then evolve into World War I. But yeah, the, uh, the Ottomans uh, and that little tension between them and the whole idea of Constantinople and Moscow believing that they were the next... Uh, Constantinople, or the next Rome. So we went from Rome to Constantinople to Moscow. And so there's that, you know, issue. But the, a lot of the issues that are happening right now and the tensions of the Russians against the West is they've been invaded by Sweden, by Poland, by Lithuania, not only the Mongols and the Nazis and Napoleon. They, when Stalin won you know, World War II on his side. That's why he put up, you know, the, the barriers. The Cold War began because he took control of Eastern Europe as a buffer zone. And so after 91, this buffer zone collapsed. And right. right now, what they're concerned about is all these countries joining NATO, like Poland. There's a lot of, you know, stress between uh, Russia and Poland. And they don't want NATO on their doorsteps. They feel this paranoia. When is, you know, when are the Americans going to invade us again? You know, when is Poland and the rest of Europe going to try to invade Russia? So they want to get a buffer zone. And that's part of why they're taking uh, that part, the eastern part of uh, Ukraine. That's a real interesting one, too. There is is more to it than just that. that region, the Donbass region of Ukraine, is one of the richest resource areas in the world. Uh, from what I've seen, approximately 25% of the world's coal is in Donbass. 
it has huge quantities of lithium, which is now powering, you know, the new batteries, you know, the Teslas of the world. And so, and as well as being a breadbasket, but it has an incredible amount of resources there. And that's one of the big reasons why Putin's taken it. Mm-hmm. Right now, he needs that because his economy, just like the Soviet economy, is running on fumes. I don't think they have the kind of financial resources that they think, you know, they're trying to show the world that they have. And part of it is because Putin and his allies have been looting the country for you know, decades now. And, you know, taking money outside of the country. Well, I wanted to ask you about Alexander Nevsky. I mean, he's a big Russian hero, and he kind of typifies the idea of that there's always this constant threat from the West, from Europe. Yeah, Nevsky was, uh, if you look at a poll of the most popular Russians in history, uh, he usually comes in the top three, along with uh, Dmitry Donskoy, uh, who was the first one to beat the Mongols in a fight in in the 1300s. But yeah, Nevsky was a very brilliant guy based out of Novgorod, which is a northern city. I think it's northwest of Moscow. And he turned back an invasion by the Teutonic Knights, which was kind of a Christian organization backed by the Catholics. And they wanted to influence Russia to become Catholic instead of Orthodox. And so he repelled them, and it was a battle on the lake where the Teutonic Knights you know, were charging with their heavy horses on an ice-ridden lake. And Nevsky was smart enough to know that that's not a good idea, and they came crashing through the ice and was able to defeat a much larger and stronger contingent of knights. And so he's that one you know, shining time during the Mongol control of the area where he was able to stop the West from invading. And so that's one of their great heroes of uh, all time. And that kind of translates now even to this day. I mean, you have, like you said, later on, you've got Poland, Lithuania, which essentially is the same state in many ways. Um, The Time of Troubles, which is kind of that transition period where Poland actually takes over Moscow for a little bit. And And that was very close to, to stopping Russia from ever existing. Yeah. yeah. People don't realize how close Russia came to never being the kind of country that it is now. So, I, so, I think it's one of the more humorous times also. Uh, my chapter in the book is called One Dimitri, Two Dimitri, Three Dimitri More. Yeah. Um, because of these false Dimitris, which was supposedly one of the sons of Ivan the Terrible, who uh, supposedly uh, killed himself while having an, stabbing himself in the throat accidentally while having an epileptic seizure. That's the story that Boris Goodenough put out there. Uh, (laughs) Is that like when somebody falls out of a window in Moscow today? So what happened was they thought that uh, Dmitry was still alive. And one was this Polish that didn't look Russian at all. He was the first false Dmitry. And then there was a second and then the third false Dmitry that, you know, the Poles used and some of the others would use to try to control the government and during this time called the time of troubles. And it was at the end of this when they elected Michael Romanov to be the new czar. And that started that 300 year reign of the Romanovs to uh, pretty much rule Russia as their own fiefdom. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and so you've got uh, then Peter the Great and Catherine the Great who really trying to try to move west. And, and Peter tries to modernize, I guess, in a way, Russia, uh, bring some Western expertise into Russia. And Catherine kind of continues that. Yeah, Peter uh, kind of grabbed Russia by the beard and said, you were going to move into the you know, to the future, whether you like it or not. And I say that about the beard is he started taxing beards because he thought that was just too Russian and he wanted people to be clean shaven. And that was, you know, totally against the whole idea of Russia at the time. But he dragged him into the, to the current century that he was living in, in the 18th century, to say, hey, you know, we've got to be a more modern country. And it, it did save the country from... Uh, you know, eventually collapsing because if they didn't move forward and somebody wanted to invade, like Sweden, they were not prepared. At first, when Sweden came in, they beat the pants off of the Russians under Peter. But Peter was smart enough to get a lot of Western Europeans over and teach a new army to build different artillery, to build a navy that they never had before. And so when Charles tried it again, uh, Peter kicked his butt at the Battle of Poltava. And all of a sudden, Russia was now considered a power because Charles XII was one of the greatest generals of all time. He was a brilliant tactician. He would beat armies twice, three times the size of his consistently. And it was Peter who finally beat him, but it was because he forced that move west. And then Catherine was even more so... And she really pushed hard because she was Western European. She came from uh, Germany and she saw that the Russian people didn't have, they were still backwards and she tried to, you know, push it forward. And she's had some great conversations in the mail that we have letters that she wrote to Voltaire and Diderot to show what her feelings were and how she wanted to move Russia into a more Western Mm -hmm. style. And that culminated with, Napoleon invading and then when he lost you know and he was starting to get pushed back all these Russian troops made it all the way over to France and then they saw how much better the rest of Europe was than Russia and that was to me the beginning of the Russian Revolution Hmm. I know Mike uh, Duncan has just finished his you know 100 plus episodes about the Russian Revolution but I think he started a little too late it really started with the Napoleonic uh, invasion. And then when the Russians got to see the rest of Europe, they said, wow, my gosh, we were screwed here. We're not nearly as you know, good. And that created a, that whole issue. And there was a lot of those people that came back. And there was a triad revolution in uh, 1825 called the Decemberist Revolt. There was a lot of the officers who came back from the war against Napoleon and wanted to have you know, change and reform the country. And that was stopped by Nicholas I. So 
went back into a more conservative uh, realm. Yeah, that's a theme that you see recurring a lot. You mentioned how Russia basically uh, missed the Renaissance, um, and then they don't even get rid of serfdom until well after the rest of the Western world. But there's these series of really ambitious reformers who are who come and try to really bring Russia up to comparable history with the West, but it, their efforts are often you know really frustrated. And then we even see later that. Uh, you know, when the communists take over, they're basically going against communist doctrine that says that uh, you have to modernize with capitalism first before communism can come. So, like, it's still, like, always trying to, you know, skip a historical step. Yeah, and it's always funny when I see that, that Lenin was like, oh, you know, we skipped that because we're just better. We already figured this one out. Right. And unfortunately, really didn't <laughs> figure it out very well on that, you know showed in 1991 that the whole system was never going to work like that. Uh, You know, Stalin tried to drag it, you know, he did industrialize Russia. It was still pretty backwards, Uh, but he did it by sheer force and fear. Right. That brutality comes into play because of the backwardness. There's like no other way for these like idealists to bring it into their, their vision other than just trying to force it on the people. Yeah, because, you know, the Russian people were very, uh, I think they were almost allergic to change. You know, they would go into anaphylactic shock when they were forced to change. I mean, there was a time when they tried to reform the, or did reform the Russian Orthodox Church under Patriarch Nikon. And the people were so upset, they said, no way are you going to change this. And there's this whole group called the Old Believers. And, you know, they were forced to you know, accept the changes and those who didn't. I mean, there were whole towns that would burn themselves alive uh, instead of changing. So the Russians were always against change and uh, Peter having to force it, you know, Catherine did. She tried very hard and some of the biggest rebellions of all time were under Catherine, uh, where hundreds of thousands of people would rebel against it. So, you know, that's just one of the things that Russia has a history of. They don't like change. Well, they want it to be the old way. And that's part of this thing with Ukraine. You know, Putin's trying to tell the people that Ukraine is Russia. It belongs to us, just as he did with Crimea a few years ago when he took that. And so it's another part of this Russian culture and history. Yeah. And, you know, Sergio was mentioning some of the reformers and stuff. And one of those was the czar, Alexander II, I mean, who stops serfdom. Right, but the way they did it was, you know, it was almost mired in failure because they made the people who were freed kind of free, but they'd have to pay to get their full freedom. And it was such an onerous amount that they really were just, you know, free in name only. And it didn't really, they didn't get the kind of freedom that they deserved. Although you have to say that they did free the serfs before the Americans freed the slaves. That's true. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, and, but they didn't import anybody to become a slave. They enslaved their own people, which is a little bit different than what you know, we did here in the United States. And he had other reforms on his mind. I mean, he was thinking about, you know, doing some kind of parliament and some kind of, you know, maybe a little bit more freedoms, but then he gets assassinated. 
1881, and it just, you know... Alexander the Third, his son and successor, just cracks right back down. So it's something that really just kind of ironically set Russia back. And had Alexander, and he was within weeks of proposing a constitutional monarchy similar to Great Britain. Right. And he gets assassinated, and his son is an extreme, a conservative reactionary who, you know, does not want that to happen. And, you know, he, Blamed the Jews, and he started a lot of pogroms. Uh, Fiddle around the roof is based on the reign of Alexander the Third, and how those people were thrown out of their country. Uh, he set back things, and then his son, who was totally unprepared, Mizar Nicholas II, was a conservative as well. And despite being told that the way to save this monarchy is to have a constitutional monarchy, he tries miserably in 1905 during that revolution to create something known as the Duma or legislative body. But he would, you know, he wouldn't abide by anything they wanted. If it was, it was his country, it was his by God. And he was not going to listen to anybody else because it was, Russia was a Romanov ownership. And so, you know, Alexander, had he succeeded, um, might've saved the Romanovs. And we might have them similar to uh, uh, what's in Great Britain now. But then again, uh, one of the things I've been doing some research on about the elite class of Russians before the revolution, the amount of money that these people had and which spent frivolously was unbelievable. Uh, one of the Grand Dukes, the brother of, uh, or uh, uncle of Nicholas II, would buy uh, Parisian actresses bought one in particular a uh, necklace that at the time was something like about $25,000, which would equate to about 700,000 today. And they would, you know, just debauched parties in Paris, spending money like crazy. And that's one of the animosities that the people had is they saw that these Romanovs were ridiculously wealthy. And that led to this revolutionary fervor. But had they had a constitution, had Alexander survived, I think they would have still been around and they might have had a little bit more control over their lavish spending. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting um, exploration of counterfactual history about like what could have happened. Yep. And it seems like it really was counterproductive to have killed him at that step, at that point, <laughs> in that point. <laughs> it's one of those kind of ironies of history. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he must have had about 20 different assassination attempts. Yeah. You know, some got closer than others, but that one final one got him. We have what we have today. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, about the second book, about what's what's in that, kind of like what you cover there. Yeah, so the first book goes from the beginnings of the land of the Rus, but with the Varangians uh, coming in, and it goes all the way to the provisional government. And when that collapsed, then the second book takes over from there. And it's when the Bolsheviks do, you know, take over the country. And I've got to tell you, that's one of the more uh, unlikely scenarios you could ever imagine that the Bolsheviks would actually yeah. be able to take over. Uh, that was by almost sheer luck and the will of one man or two men of uh, Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky. If not for those two, the Bolsheviks had no chance. 
I mean, the odds against them were tremendous, and yet they somehow made it out. And part of it is because the opposing side, the whites, as they call them, were as scattered and had no real leader. And that's where I go into the the Soviet era all the way up to uh, Putin. And I don't cover much about Putin because he's still not history yet. Hmm. You know, he's still, he's current events. But I show all these different things that occurred, you know, throughout the first book, those little tidbits of what explains uh, Putin's behavior and the Russians as a whole, and more so during the Soviet era of what they believed to be their right. I mean, they, Soviet Union was a huge country and it controlled so many now independent countries. And Putin really believes that they should be part of Russia. And that's what I really try to point out. But the Soviet era is a very fascinating one. Uh, The pain they went through, the millions upon millions of people who were killed by under Lenin and Stalin and you know the, the whole idea of the gulags and how they subjugated their people and it's it's a fascinating period of time but it explains a lot mm-hmm. of what's going on now the authoritarianism of putin is based on that soviet era cuz we have to remember he was a disciple of the former president of the soviet union and former head of the kgb yuri andropov right that was his boss and taught him a lot of his authoritarian ways at that time. Yeah, he's, he's got a fascinating history. Uh, I know some people who used to work for him and with him. Uh, I, again, I would not want to share the words that they use because this would turn this into an X-rated episode of what they feel about him and what the truth is about his past and you know what he's done and how he came to power. Uh, it's, you know, one day I'll do it, but I'm going to wait until after. One day I'd like to visit Russia, but right now I don't right. think that would be very safe for me. Probably not a good idea, yeah. Yeah, my brother called me the other day and said, you know what, Mark? After listening to one of your episodes, I don't think a trip to St. Petersburg would be in the wisest thing we should do. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I'm curious about um, this war I mean, it's kind of been just a wild ride over the last few months. And it seems now that it's kind of becoming this day-to-day thing. And and I really feel like Americans aren't paying as much attention to it as they were when it first started. I mean, you know, everybody flew their Ukrainian flag and there's a lot of support on Twitter and all these kind of social media places. But now it seems like the news cycle is just always continually recycling itself. And then... The Uvalde thing happened and then you inflation and then, you know, the January 6th committee and all these things that are going on in this country. And the war isn't quite as, I guess, quote unquote, exciting on the ground as it was, as it was whenever it first started. It's going to be coming. It's becoming like this big kind of slog war of attrition type of war. And what's your thoughts about where this goes? I mean, like how long is this thing going to last? What, you know, what, what could be the end result for Russia? What could be the end result for Ukraine? Yeah, I, I've been wrong on predicting what Putin would do <laughs> because I didn't think he would have the, be dumb enough to invade Ukraine. I didn't think that he would uh, go that far. Yeah, uh, I was proven wrong, and some of my uh, relatives have, you know, reminded me of that. Uh, so my predictability here is is slow, but I think it's. I think it ends with Putin 
if he dies and there are rumors that he's, you know, terminally cancer ridden and has Parkinson's disease and all sorts of stuff, yeah. uh, whether it's true or not, uh, you know, I, I think there is something to it, but he wants to grab that part of Ukraine. And I, I think if he wants to continue the war, it's going to go on for a long time and people are getting war re- weary, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially in the media. They want to go for the, you know, as you said, with Evaldi and you know, inflation. But, of course, inflation, a lot of it is due to the war. Yeah, in Ukraine. that's true. You know, uh, the oil that we no longer get or the Europeans don't get from Russia. The United States only got 3% of the oil from Russia. Uh, Europe was very dependent upon it. And that's why the prices started skyrocketing like that. Uh, Ukraine is also a huge exporter of grain and a lot of other uh, commodities that they no longer get out. So that caused a lot of problems with it. I don't think that uh, the Russian people are thinking are going to start getting weary of Putin, especially the oligarchs, uh, when, they can't, when their yachts have been taken, when they can't spend money outside of the country, when their families are banned from different places. Uh, there's some rumblings out there. And what's interesting is there have been a couple of whole families of oligarchs who have mysteriously died. Uh, there's been a lot of murder suicides uh, amongst the oligarchs. And a number of the KGB officers who have disappeared or can't call them KGB anymore, but uh, there are secret police, their officers have disappeared. So there's, we know there's some internal rumblings right now. And as we've seen in Russian history, sometimes they just take the ruler out. Uh, there's one book I, I read on Russian history that they call it the, uh, the country of the poisoners, where so many of the rulers or the nobility would be poisoned. Uh, Ivan the Terrible, they said that his wife, Anastasia Romanovna, was poisoned. And that's why he went crazy, because he blamed all the boyars, the, the nobles, for doing that. But a lot of others have died mysteriously. So I think that may be one of the outcomes that Putin finally gets taken out by his own people. Yeah, I want to go to Russia for a little bit if I was here. (laughs) That's the thing. It seems like our media was really pushing that for a little while. And now I feel like that's kind of died down. I heard all the Putin is sick, he's ill type of things. And I mean, that's going to either A, be some kind of weird Russian misinformation or B, it's true. So either, you know, it's 50-50 on that. But it seems like our media is kind of pushing the fact that, yeah, the, there were all these protests right when the war in Ukraine started. And then there was, there's really been nothing that seems like the, the Russians are, are going to try to change leaders right now. Yeah. But there's, there's some talk about some of the people who would replace him. Yeah. You know, and so we don't know, you know, we, it's it's like the Soviet times. We don't know what's really going on internally with them. So we can hope that, you know, something's going to happen. Uh, maybe he's going to just stop and take the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, you know, I, I did an episode on the crisis in Ukraine where I talk about why that's that area is considered very much more Russian than the other part, which was considered more Polish mm-hmm. influenced the uh, western part of uh, Ukraine. Right. So maybe he stops at Donbass. Uh, we don't know. You no, know, I, right now it's, 
I have no idea what he's doing and why he's doing this because it's certainly not helping his people and it's not helping his economy. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with John Mearsheimer, the foreign policy professor? I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. He talks a lot about this and, you know, one of the things that, that he has said, I actually saw an interview that he, well, actually a lecture that he gave in 2014. So just when the first crisis was starting or right after it. And he said that one of Putin's goals in Ukraine is to just wreck it. So that like, basically, well, if I can't have it, you can't have it either. You can't use it kind of mentality. Yeah. That, that sounds very consistent with what I've seen Putin do. He's going to grab what he can, the more valuable part, which is Donbass and that region Donetsk. And then just send missiles out and make life hell for the Ukrainians. But he is suffering from one thing. The young people of Russia are leaving. Yeah. They're leaving in droves. Right. They want out. They don't want this anymore. And that's going to hurt him long term. They already have a serious population uh, problem, right? Yep. And to lose the young people who are coming to Europe, coming to the United States, who have incredible talents, uh, that's going to hurt long term. So, and I don't think he realized when he did this that countries like Finland and Sweden would join NATO. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, tried to get uh, the Turks to block that, but, you know, deals were made. And so now he's actually weakened his resolve and trying to protect from, you know, having NATO on his doorstep. He actually almost invited them to come closer. Serious uh, mistake on his part. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things. Like, I mean, there's just, I really was watching it really closely for a while. And recently I've kind of just stopped really paying much attention. But just like the whole Finland and Sweden thing, I mean, he basically came out and said, well, we have no quarrel with these states. So he's fine with them joining NATO. I mean, he can't really do anything about it. But like Finland has like an 800 mile long border with Russia. And they're not that far from St. Petersburg, which is, I guess, the second major city. And I mean, it's, I think he just doesn't want like NATO apparatus in Finland, but he's fine with, so it's like, there's, there's kind of these weird contradictory statements that he's okay with Finland and Sweden. He's like, we have no quarrel with these states, but if Ukraine was to join NATO, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. I think he, he'd had to save face. Yeah. yeah. Saying, hey, we have no problems here. And he does have deep problems with that. He does not like that. Right. Because that kind of, you know, puts him in a cage where it's getting tighter and tighter around him. And that's the other thing. I just like, I just like to pick your brain about this, putting him in a cage, isolating him. You know, this is a country with a lot of nuclear weapons. Does he lash out? I mean, he made, when he invaded Ukraine, he made threats like you'll see, you know, destruction like you've never seen if you try to interfere with this. And a lot of people assume that he was talking nuclear stuff. And I mean, this has been some of the biggest nuclear saber rattling that we've seen in 60 years or even 40 years since like the early 1980s. But like, is there, you know, from what you've kind of assessed and looked at, do you think that, that, that they're, that they're serious about using like a nuclear weapon, even like a tactical one in Ukraine? I think it would be, it would be the end of him. It yeah. would 
uh, it would destroy Russia. Uh, one of the things that I do know about the Russian military and, and previously the Soviet military is it ain't as strong as they think it is. Uh, we've seriously overestimated their military prowess. Uh, I worked when I worked uh, in New York as a camera salesman, one of the people in the warehouse had escaped from the Soviet Union. He was a Air Force pilot mm-hmm. and he had gone to Finland to uh, you know, get out of the Soviet Union. And the stuff he told me about how bad the Russian military was, was astonishing. Uh, he said they would steal the windshield washer fluid from the MiG jets in order to turn it into drinking alcohol <laughs> and replace it with water. And he says, you know, it's like one of the reasons that he came over to the other side is he said, I don't want to get killed because these guys didn't know what they were doing. You know, they're drunk half the time and I didn't know whether my plane was safe enough. And, you know, from other things that I've learned about the Soviet Union and their military, their missiles, uh, their systems are not as accurate as people think they were, especially, you know, during the Soviet era, that a lot of their missiles wouldn't have been able to hit New York if they tried. If they sent 100 missiles, they'd probably miss 99% of the time. Uh, What I've seen in some of the, the tanks that they're using in Ukraine are not as powerful or safe as they want you to believe they are. The only thing they're good at is, you know, they can send these long range missiles in and they, you know, the one that killed a bunch of uh, people in an apartment complex, they were trying to hit a building that was about a, like five or six blocks away and they couldn't, couldn't hit them. Right. And that's why he's in Iran right now, Putin, because he needs their drones in order to be more accurate because they couldn't, they had no accuracy in their missile strikes. So they weren't hitting the targets they wanted to and, then you have the people's collateral damage to them. So I think it would be really, I think that if Putin were to do that, it's suicidal. And he would be suicidal at that point, knowing that he's dying or something like that, that he's so boxed in, he doesn't see any way out. But I would wonder if the Russian military would really want to follow through on that, knowing what would happen to them. Because the retaliation would be extreme. And I don't think we would have any allies in that. And I'm sure the Chinese would not want that. So, you know, they have a lot of influence as well. Well, that's a little hopeful. Kind of bring a little bit of hope out there. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you about um, Russian soft power and influence operations on the West. And no matter how, you know, unequal our budgets and, and, military systems are that is one thing you know in the mind war realm they are uh, pretty much on par if not better than us recently uh wondering just your thoughts about about that i know a lot of the the soft power has been projected through the orthodox church and you see a lot of people joining the orthodox russian church for more of these ideological reasons of uh, embracing this kind of traditionalism against the decadent West and uh, just all this kind of stuff, how how they're um, influencing uh, Western politics and some of their goals and that. Just wondering what some of your thoughts about that might be. Absolutely. I mean, their soft power is superior to ours. They man- We know for a fact that they helped to manipulate the election in 2016. Yeah. I mean, no question about that. Uh, I know people inside there uh, whose names shall remain anonymous 
they they did this. They were involved in it. I mean, they wanted somebody like Donald Trump to be president of the United States uh, because they knew that they had stuff on him. And they were able to, you know, influence an election. But we're not the only ones they've influenced. I mean, I know that they're doing this. They did it in Hungary. They've done it, tried it in a number of other countries. They've done it, uh, tried to do it in France recently. Uh, They're very good at propaganda and manipulating the media. Uh, They control their media. They know we don't. They know how to get inside of our media and to influence people. And they're masters at it. And we have to be aware that Mm -hmm. that's what they're doing. I mean, this is, they're not doing this for, for our good. They're doing it for their own good. And they know that they can't beat us militarily, but they know that propaganda-wise, they can manipulate people very easily. And they do it to their own people. Uh, they're doing it to the West. Uh, you know, the, they're not the only ones. The Chinese are doing it as well. Uh, that's something that we're going to have to become better at. But we have to acknowledge that it actually exists and there are people who don't think it ever did and that's really kind of a no-kill battle for us yeah i absolutely agree did you want to ask about alexander dugan at all uh maybe a little bit yeah what are you what are your thoughts on alexander dugan it's weird because i remember trying to get a hold of like english translations of his stuff um foundations of geopolitics in particular back in like 2010 or something when he was relatively unknown in the West, but now he's like, you know, spoken of as uh, Putin's Rasputin and um, kind of has this, uh, this, this fusion authoritarian ideology that he's uh, presenting as the uh, unique Russian ideology that can be a, a counterpart towards the West. Yeah. There's, so many of those type of theories about that. Russia is a unique country. Uh, the authoritarianism actually fits their culture, mm-hmm. you might say, and their history, uh, unlike most other countries. So when they try to export it to other countries, it just doesn't work as well. China and Russia are two that can work. Uh, I don't think it'll work other places. Uh, anybody who proposes that that's a way of doing things. It's, I think, through the, uh, the lens of Russian history that authoritarianism can work there. I don't think it'll work elsewhere to try to export it. Uh, you know, I mean, they're trying. They've tried here, you know, in the United States for sure. Uh, there is a growing sentiment for that, and that's very disturbing to me. Uh, I see way too many corollaries to German history. Uh, my dad was born in Tria in 1921. He went through the Nazification of Germany. And he told me, he says, I want you to never be quiet when you see that happening in our country. He says, I don't ever think it'll happen in the United States. But here's what happened. Uh, my grandfather was a staunch anti-Nazi. Uh, he actually threatened the entire Shao's family that if anybody joined the Nazi party, it would be ostracized from the family forever. Mm. Only one person did, and he was ostracized forever. Uh, the only saving grace for my grandfather was he was one of the world's greatest violinists at the time. He had some very powerful people that were friends of his, including Wagner's uh, widow, 
So he was protected, but he was threatened to go to uh, the concentration camps if he didn't uh, stay quiet. But my dad says, you can never be quiet if you see this. And unfortunately, I am seeing a little bit of that happening today. And, you know, for the past five, six years, it's been getting worse. So, you know, there was a movement to that. Uh, I'm hoping it doesn't because we all know the outcome of what happened when, you know, after Germany got, you know, with fascist government, uh, tens of millions of people died because of it. And I would just hope that it doesn't happen in our country or in any other one. But that's part of what I see is going on in Russia as well. They've become a very fascist country. So they've gone from, you know, a monarchy to a tiny little bit of democracy uh, to a communist country, which to me, actually, the communism of the Soviet Union was much closer to fascism than it was the true Marxism. Uh, and now, you know, they're going, they had another brief period of democracy, and now they're going back to a fascist type of state. So, oh, yeah, very authoritarian. Yeah. Who knows, but to think of him as a kind of a Rasputin-like person, that, that is interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's the irony of them saying that they're going to denazify Ukraine is, you know. When I heard that, and, you know, I have some friends who are pro-Putin that I, you know, communicate with on occasion, and they're giving me this stuff, I'm going, please. Yes, the Ukrainians, a lot of Ukrainians did side with the Nazis when they invaded in World War II. There were a lot of collaborators. It was actually in army units mm -hmm. that fought against the Soviets, uh, one of whom was my uncle. Uh, my mother's brother fought on the side of the Ukrainians with the Nazis against the Soviets. Uh, and that's a whole incredible story. My mom was told that he died fighting in uh, Ukraine. I found out about three years after she died that he actually survived and he was in Paris and died in 2002. She had no idea that he actually did live. And really? that, yeah, he couldn't find her because he didn't know what her new last name was, Schaus. Yeah. And uh, she didn't think that he was alive, so didn't think to look. But yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of Ukrainians did fight on the side of the Nazis, and many of them uh, were, you know, part of the extermination of the Jews in Ukraine. So there's a little, you know, what they did is what Putin's taken is a little bit of truth right. and expanded it to a huge amount of lies. There's a grain of truth in there. There were a lot of Nazis there, the Nazi sympathizers. But that was what seventy five years ago, and well, more recently, there's there's the Azov Battalion too that has has worn Nazi regalia and 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 swastikas and this type of thing, and that's much more recent. But that's one little paramilitary group. Yeah, in, in and I think you see more of them in the eastern eastern part of Ukraine than you yeah. do. Right, and the, you know the the pro Russians are the more fascist uh, yeah. leaning. And so he would have to kill his own troops in order to make what he said true. Right. And, and you've also got the paramilitary group that works with Russia, the, the Wagner group, 
that has i mean they have a lot of kind of like fascist kind of pagan symbolism as well so you know they're they're almost like two two sides of the same coin essentially very interesting stuff mark i i really appreciate you coming on and uh and uh, talking about this this has been something i've been wanting to talk about for a while now thanks a lot it really helps uh i think people really need this this context to understand uh this conflict and that's why i've really become reinvigorated doing my russian history podcast is because of this very issue it really uh, got me thinking that we need to learn more about what's going on in order to make the correct decisions and to understand what's really going on in this and and you know for people to make these comments of well let's just give ukraine to to putin what the heck it's not our you know problem well, yeah, it kind of is our problem, and it's going to become worse of a problem if we were to allow that to happen. I want people to understand the historical reasons for all of this, and that's why my book, Understanding Putin, you know, just <laughs> I just got to finish the last edit. Uh, thankfully, it's my wife, who is a former English teacher. And that helps. Sometimes she looks at it and goes, Mark, I have no idea what you just wrote here. This makes no sense. <laughs> and, well, I used it in my podcast. It made sense to me then, she goes, but not in written English. So we're, we're pretty close and we're thinking that probably it'll be done sometime in August. It'll be ready. It'll be just an ebook. And, uh, you know, I will be announcing that I'll have, I have a website, RussianRulersHistory.com, And, uh, I am available on all the podcast, you know, podcatchers out there. And so we have over 200. I just, uh, uploaded episode 225, not as many as you guys have, but trying to catch up. And so I'm pretty much putting something out every week. Yeah. And my next series, I just finished one on the siege of Leningrad, which has a lot of corollaries to what's going on in Ukraine. It was a four part series of one of the most incredible sieges in human history. And my next series is on the great cities of old Russia. And then following that is a five part series on the year 1917. And as we know, this years. is the Russian Revolution and conversion from Nicholas II to Vladimir Lenin taking over. So, got a lot planned for it. So, the first book comes out, you said, in August. When is the second book? We are hoping that? for uh, probably December, January of 2023. Okay. That would be ready because one of the things about the first book, which is very difficult, is the sources of information that we have. Where it's kind of like playing the game of telephone, you know, it, it's this something called the Primary Chronicles for the first part. Until we get to about Peter the Great, we don't have very good sources. Uh, some of the main sources for somebody like Ivan the Terrible were these letters between him and Prince Kerbsky. We're now finding out that they may have all been forged. That there was no correspondence between these two men that tell us about the reign of Ivan. So even that we don't know is very true so it made it very difficult to do a history when i'm really big on you know facts and trying to get the the truth out there when we really don't know what the truth is so that made it a little bit more difficult the second part soviet history we know an awful lot and especially when the soviet union collapsed and we had that window of opening to see what was the internal documents of the soviet union so that one's going to be a little bit easier to do. Well, Marcus, it's been great to have you on. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. 
Tell people where they can find you again. You can find it at uh, RussianRulersHistory.com. And uh, I'll, I'll be putting one thing out there. And one of my episodes is coming out in September. It's about what the Russian nobility did after the revolution. And one was the women were the ones who would be the main um, money makers, and they would do needlepoint. And when they moved to places like Paris and New York, and I'll have pictures of my mother's work that she did. It's very similar to what all the Russian nobility did after the revolution. So I'll have pictures and things like that up there. And a lot of the episodes, I've got the, uh, you know, the content of the scripts on that website as well. Oh, nice. Nice. All right, guys. Well, I mean, I think that's it for this episode. Please join us this year, Strange Realities Conference, October 14th through the 16th here in Nashville, Tennessee at SIR Nashville. Uh, got a good range of guests and speakers that are going to be there this year. And uh, Sergio can also tell you where to find our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Uh, where for $5 every month you can join the International Association of Conspiranormalists and catch the Patreon segment that we are going to do with tonight's guest. Yeah, patreon.com slash conspiranormal. All right, guys, join us next time. Get back to the weird and the woo. Actually, we're going to do a Paranoid Styles next time, so join us for that on Conspiranormal.